On today's show, we ask the question, who are they? And we discuss the continuing emergence of the world corporation. You're listening to the Propaganda Report. I'm Brad Binkley here with Monica Perez. Monica, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm great. I want to talk a little bit about who are they. Now, I'm not promising an answer to that question in this show, but I've been listening to a lot of panel discussions, which are really exciting, let me tell you, at at the Brookings YouTube page and the Council on Foreign Relations YouTube page. You make them exciting. I try to. There's usually like 30 views and like 12 down votes, two up votes in the comments. That's their trick. They say nobody ever listens, nobody reads, we can say whatever we want, we can plot this conspiracy on the internet, because even if anyone read it, no one would believe it. That's what the report from Iron Mountain starts as, like, ah, this isn't even top secret because nobody's going to do anything. Well, you're ready to end it by the end of the introductions (laughs) in most of these things. Play it on two times speed. Oh, I do. Oh, my God. Some of them are unbelievably long. (laughs) And some are on the record, too. Some of them, they state this is on the record, and the other ones that aren't on the record, we don't hear about. So this is stuff that they actually say and will allow people to find versus what they say behind closed doors. So I figured a good place to start figuring out who they are is listening to what some of these think tanks have to say in their own words, because it was recently there was a celebration of like 100 years of think tanks, and obviously there was some that existed before that, and they were – Maybe called something different before that, but there's been some celebrations among these among these members of think tanks lately, and I've pulled some clips from some of their discussions about their history and their origin and their mission and their purpose that I think might be kind of enlightening for us, and I want to go through some of those today. I'm ready. All right. We'll dive right in. Let's start with the Chatham House. This is a Brookings panel. On, uh, this wasn't Brookings, actually. This was Council on Foreign Relations. I have, I have some from Council on Foreign Relations and from Brookings. This is from a Council on Foreign Relations panel with uh, representatives from multiple think tanks, and this is a representative from the Chatham House think tank telling us about the origin of Chatham House prior and during and after World War One. This is a long clip, but wait for the punchline at the end because it's worth it. I've looked into some of the history of Chatham House. There's a lot of it. Um, and there were various groups that had milled around prior to the Paris Peace Conference uh, trying to build up almost what you call a kind of, today we'd call civil society, a non-governmental group of principally academics um, who felt that international affairs should be interpreted in a less transactional, kind of traditional diplomacy way. And once the uh, First World War took place, broke out, um, and uh, the Versailles peace treaty negotiations got together. The governments reached out to a lot of academics to bring them into their delegations to help sort through what was an incredibly complex negotiations. But they gathered, as I understand it, for um, a dinner uh, on May the 30th in the Hotel Majestic in Paris um, to have a conversation about how to keep this process going. How could you develop some institutions that would take a more historical um, more detached, more fact-based um, assessment of international affairs and make sure that the kind of terrible conflict that led to the First World War did not happen again, i.e. traditional diplomacy left to its own devices uh, leads potentially to bad outcomes. And certainly that was one of the instincts that helped create Chatham House. So a bunch of guys who think they're smarter than everybody else 
were called in. They, they were already going around doing this stuff, it sounds like, prior to the war. Then they're called in to help on the peace treaty, which completely laid all the blame at the foot of Germany and created a path to Hitler, gave rise to Hitler. And these are the guys who ultimately founded the Chatham House, and you'll see in a moment – the Council on Foreign Relations, the guys who made decisions that gave rise to Hitler. Yeah, I that that clip itself was just packed with triggers for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I, we don't have enough time for you to get through my reaction to the, that clip, but I'll just give you a couple of points that that it I absolutely uh, don't think the quote governments of the world reached out to academics. This was, if you took our experience, it was the exact opposite, which is if I, well, I didn't brush up on this, but my understanding, if I recall correctly, was that Colonel House, who was Wilson's handler for the round table, which was, if you, when you said who's them, I always think of the three R's, Rhodes, Rothschilds, and Rockefellers. So Rhodes was the, the round table that the Colonel House was part of, he handled Wilson for them. I think they hand-selected Wilson, who was an academic, and Wilson was just a puppet all that time. I believe he was ill by the time this rolled around. I can't remember. Maybe not, but uh, he was ill at a certain point. But anyway, uh, Colonel House went over there, and I think the deal he cut caused an irreparable schism between him and House. He didn't want it to be that way. They tried to establish the League of Nations, which uh, – Wilson, I believe, was on board with, but the U.S. would not go for it. But just that whole vindictive uh, make Germany responsible for everything wasn't what was the armistice was based on. And when Colonel House did that, Wilson felt he was acting outside of his mandate. Oh, really? That is how I understand it. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've read that, it before. From, from, what I've, from what I've read, a lot of these – British elites kind of infiltrated, not really infiltrated, but surrounded the president, got their talking points into the mouth of the president. Well, and Rhodes was British, and his goal was to surreptitiously reinvent the British Empire board. I, I've talked about Corbett's three-part thing on World War One. That's a, that's excellent. I'd, I'd already read this part is well-established, that Rhodes wanted to do that through through implanting social democracy and the English language around the world, which I think accounts for all of these foreign wars from Korea to Vietnam to every, like rooting out every native culture, changing, conforming all of the governments, conforming the language and all of that can trace back to Rhodes, who was British and House was an agent of Rhodes, or at least, at least the legacy of Rhodes and controlled Wilson. And that's when they started to say, you really only need to control the State Department. You don't need to control the domestic stuff because that's where the rubber hits the road. They did not, after Wilson, they did not control Harding or Coolidge. I don't know about uh, Hoover. They, I believe they did control, probably Hoover, they did control FDR. But Harding and Coolidge, this is an interesting fact. They're, I would say, I'm no presidential scholar, but I. those are two of my favorite presidents. I believe Harding was assassinated in office. He won... The greatest landslide in presidential history followed closely by Coolidge. Both of them forestalled the depression that I think people like House and his cronies were trying to bring in or that was inevitable after they started the Fed, which inflated money. And uh, and here's a fun fact. 
those two great presidents won by absolute historical landslides after women got the vote. And Woodrow Wilson was elected before. And I'm not saying that because I'm like, yay, women. But people actually attribute the downfall of this country to women getting the vote. And, uh, I mean, I would just say that there's a little counter evidence for you. But those guys were kicking the can on the American way until the CFR, I think, uh, had kind of captured the presidency through the State Department on and off after that. But I, I believe that Eisenhower was a member of the CFR, too. To piggyback off of that clip, if there's any uncertainty about the way that they think this short little clip should clarify any of that. The idea that you do not leave policy simply to governments, uh, and especially in a more competitive international environment of the sort we face today, uh, uh, I would say continues to have some very important currency. You need to hear that again? <laughs> you should play it again. It's pretty bad. The idea that you do not leave policy simply to governments, uh, and especially in a more competitive international environment of the sort we face today, uh, uh, I would say continues to have some very important currency. They had the microphone on one of the guys way too close, and he's making noises the whole time. <laughs> so when you hear these weird sounds, it's like a like a ninety five year old looking French. Uh, Maybe it's the AOC thing where he that's what to it sounds like, but it's, lot, it's our, really gross. Our sometimes. viscera. <laughs> so clearly, this is a group that believed they were smarter than everybody else, and they weren't going to leave it to. You well, know. let me say uh, that this does absolutely remind me of things that have happened uh, then, and in uh, and now, and halfway in between. And that I have a couple of books here. It's coincidental that I, ha I was going to do this stuff on Saturday on the WSB show, unrelated to what you happen to find since then, but I think it totally dovetails. I have a, a book here by Edward Mandel House, Mandel House, Philip Drew, Administrator. It's a well-known book, A Story of Tomorrow from 1920 to 1935, and it talks about this kind of corporate revolution where this guy, he's the administrator. He takes over the country. He's just an administrator, like a technocrat. Around actually before this, before I think this was World War One, before World War One, even maybe 1912, is this book uh, "World Corporation" by King Gillette, who started Gillette Company. Oh, he but, started Gillette. Yeah, and he and he feel and Gillette isn't Gillette the one that said, um, "Man, we have to sell you razors, but you suck and you need to stop." I hate sucking. you, but buy my razors. I, I hate you, man. Sick. We hate you. We just clean your face here. So that was back then, before and after World War One, uh, and it talks about this kind of corporation, and then Brzezinski, he maybe I did talk about this Saturday commissioned. A book talking about how, like, the, all the protests during Vietnam, which is funny because the CIA was behind the protests and the war, and now this synthesis. It's really, like, the, the probably the purest form of the dialectic or example of that. The Crisis of Democracy, which Brzezinski had the Trilateral Commission pulled together with a bunch of different essays. Some of the essayists objected to his conclusion from the book, but Brzezinski kind of tops it all off by saying, okay— Democracy doesn't really work, so uh, what we're saying is make sure that everybody is beholden to an institution that does not have a democratic process. I think of labor. I think of 
colleges. I think of corporations where they they are absolutely beholden to just go along or or even the stock market now that we're 401ks we have no power and pension plans used to have power on our behalf but we we don't now he also says use ngos as much as possible that the name the meaning of ngo non-governmental organization has evolved or broadened since then but his idea expressly was to take the power out of the democracy and it, it and it reminds me of Kissinger around that time saying of Chile like this is the the presidency of Chile is much much too important to allow the voters to decide so we went in and really messed with their government and we do it of course to this day to the point where in Saturday's Wall Street Journal May eighteenth it twenty nineteen it says the glo- the the a pullout is the global crisis of democracy and it says as China and Russia attack free governments and push strongman rule that is what we do the U S has gone silent not correct Egypt Ukraine Syria Venezuela Iran need I go on Iraq obviously. Afghanistan, the U.S. has not gone silent. Anyway, a new tide of authoritarianism is gathering. Big surprise. By Larry Diamond, who is an advisor to the National Endowment for Democracy, which was a CIA front. I feel like I did say that on Saturday. But this is all uh, bears repeating because what you're saying about them thinking way back then, 100 years ago, that they needed to circumvent democracy – they, they they do put those plans into place, and they have these think tanks, and maybe it didn't work through the League of Nations. Maybe the UN is the second iteration of that, but they but I think they're underground doing all this stuff through not only the CFR but also all those think tanks, the Marshall, Bosch, World Economic Forum, all of it. Yeah, and they seem to be in kind of a, they're very wary of the influence that public relations firms have on them, so they acknowledge that public relation firms, at least in these panels they did, are attempting to influence them the same way that they're attempting attempting to influence others. And they're very much – I believe at one point somebody said, we need to make sure we engage and not be engaged. So wow. that they're the ones putting the talking points in everybody's sure mind framing it. as opposed to somebody else. And they're very wary about it's how difficult it is to tell when someone at a PR firm is trying to subtly deceive them because that's what they do. So they're aware when those forces are trying to work on them as well. It's, it's pretty interesting. It was too – that was too complex to, to cut clips about when they were right. talking about that stuff. But um, that's interesting. Now, here, here's the – this is Richard Haas, the head of the CFR. Oh, yeah. And he's all over this. Yikes. This okay. is him explaining he's like some of up there with Bolton as far as oh my, yeah like I got, my blood turning to jello. <laughs> well, I got some good stuff for you. Then. Coagulating on the spot. I got like ten guy. clips from him. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Buckle in the seatbelt. This is him talking about a little bit about the origin and purpose of the CFR. The idea was to have a continuing conversation. That was the phrase. A continuing conversation within this this country's elite about this country's role in the world. And the Council on Foreign Relations was one of the institutions that was created for that express purpose. The express bias orientation was one towards internationalism. Duh. Oh, my gosh. No, that's really important. Because, I mean, it's obvious, but, but that's what we're living with. First of all, he says in that tiny little thing, both the elite 
and internationalism, which is exactly the system, the regime that they've overlaid on us. And we had nothing to do with it, and it wasn't for us. Absolutely. Now, here he goes on to elaborate. It's a bit of a long clip, but it's worth it. This came at a time where, in the early 20th century, you had a whole movement to improve the quality of governance. Uh, Brookings was founded at roughly the same time. There was pushback against the spoil system. The whole idea in the tw- government was going to play, as we saw in, pre- in succeeding decades, a much larger role in American life. New Deal being in some ways what ushered a lot of that, that in. But the idea was that we needed strong institutions in our society to help improve the, or raise the quality of governance. And to some extent, it would come from within, but also it would come from outside. And whether it was a place to generate ideas, whether it was a place to generate, uh, to develop talent. And this, it, you know, today we probably call it some version of a public-private partnership. But again, the idea was part of this, what then meant the progressive movement, good government movement, the Gugus. But this was a, a powerful idea in early 20th century America, essentially part of the professionalization of government, which was going to take on an ever larger role in American economic life, in American political life, and in America's foreign policy. Oh, my gosh. I'll just let you react. I'm so <laughs> I knew that one would trigger it's you. Like, it's like every book I ever read is like crashing into my brain at one time. Um, wow. Okay. Can't even write fast enough. Uh, first of all, it it was a plot to do that. If you watch that very um, compact one hour interview by Edward, um, it's not uh, G. Edward Griffin, um, who wrote Creature from Jekyll Island. He interviewed Norman Dodd, who talked about it. I've mentioned this many times, but if you ever actually went and read it and watched it, you could see that. Dodd discovered when he was head of research for the House Un-American Activities Committee investigating tax-exempt foundations, which is the outside influence that Haas clearly is talking about, or I think it's clear, uh, certainly it's in that category, they found the Carnegie Endowment minutes from the early establishment of the Carnegie Endowment saying, how do we change America from uh, individualistic to collectivist? And they, after researching the question, they determined that it was war, and they did everything they could to get us into war, and we did get into war. Then uh, I, I think it was a book I was reading by Murray Rothbard about the history of banking in the United States and the advent of the Fed and all that. And what they did, it, it dovetails with this stuff. That might have been in a few different books. They established the like um, Association for Economists, the Association for Historians. And with the economists, they said, look, they, there's a push from above to get us into a more centralized economy. And this laissez-faire thing, it may work, it may not work, regardless of your feelings about it, you will have a more important role in society. There will be more jobs. They'll pay more. You can be on the ground floor of it if you embrace economics as a bigger industry than it is right now. And they got they got enough people to go along with that in, in a similar way. They established, I think it was like the historical, American Historical Association or whatever it is. Like, I don't want to, there are different things with different names. I don't know which was which. I don't know what the one was that was highlighted in this book, but 
the idea behind it was they went around to the his, the, the history teachers in the country, a big um, sampling of them, and asked them to kind of look at history in a different way, to, to downplay the triumphs, the individuality, and upplay these themes that they wanted to shape the future, because who controls the past controls the future. And they really could not get a critical mass of history teachers and history professors to go along with it. So what they did was they said, all right, well, we'll just have to start from here forward and just memory hole that stuff, um, make them not important. And going forward, there'll be people, we'll make sure those guys don't don't get their the new jobs. We'll be careful who gets the jobs. So they intentionally professionalized, to use Haas's words, all that stuff. And then you can also hear in Haas's word, professional professionalizing government is this concept of the technocracy, the technocracy. Oh, they talk about that a lot. Oh, really? Because that's what Brzezinski had in in a, in a book around that he put out around the same time, America, uh, in the technotronic era, like America between two worlds, maybe even, but it was in the technotronic era. And, and the idea is, is that's when he started talking about in the early seventies, being able to retrieve the most intimate information about a person through a single keystroke. I mean, I don't even know if they, if computers were run on keystrokes back then, but he clearly anticipated that. And this, and an example of the technocracy happened without a blip. It made not a ripple was when in Italy, when the, when the European debt crisis was at its hitting its stride or at its peak a couple of years ago, they put, they, they they basically swapped out the democratically elected president or whoever it was uh for like a banker <laughs> they just swapped him out i mean it was like how did that not cause a a, a civil clash of the highest or a real civil war because it was the technocracy the the globalist european technocracy yeah. taking over the reins of the most important elements of Italian, uh, of Italian governance. And they just, they did it without anybody's real permission. And they, and it's funny that they also said, just to hit off my other things here. When did they do that? When was that? That was, I mean, less than 10 years ago. That's for sure. I used to just have that stuff at the tip of my tongue because it was top of mind. But now, I mean, that's, it's over. It didn't, nothing came of it. I could find the guy. Just, I don't want to. I could do the research in real time if you want to stop and start. But no, I was just curious because they yeah, you can easily in. find it. Like it's just if you just look at the Italian technocrat banker who took over took over the reins of government with that. And, well, Hall's talks about how the CFR was founded by a bunch of bankers from the Northeast. Uh, at one point, bunch of bunch of men that were bankers that were all from like I guess uh, Boston area. I, I wouldn't. Uh, my guess is that it's the same guys who started the Fed, Aldrich or whatever his name was. When they went to Jekyll Island, I believe it was a senator from Massachusetts. I uh, we could do that in real time too. But the the Brookings Institution he's saying was created at the same time. That that's these are if you read that like. Document the North American Union, written by Weld and somebody else, and signed by Heidi Cruz, and about how they want North America to be one big union with the most restrictive laws 
being the laws that that rule. So the most restrictive labor and environmental laws. So the United States probably has the least restrictive. They want us to adopt either Canada's or Mexico's laws. And they talk about how they want to establish an institution like the Bilderberg Group to help the legislators in these different countries conform legislation to this supranational body. I mean, that's absolutely unconstitutional. All the stuff he's talking about is unconstitutional. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, Norman Dodd was investigating it on behalf of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he concluded they were actually un-American. And they and they uh, just the foundations or the think tanks, the tax exempt foundations. But these well, are the foundations are what are one of the things that funds a lot of these. Yeah, I mean, like they, some of they, these some of these think tanks from other countries. One of them, I think it was a French think tank. The guy was like, "We want to thank." By the way, we need to stop and think the Ford Foundation, which gave us the original Rome in 1947 or whatever. So it's just funny to hear that uh, the think tanks are from different countries, but then they're talking about how they're pretty much funded by uh, American foundations. Yeah, I believe that. And and like the Bosch Foundation is German, but it's a think tank in itself. And the Ford thing, I would be surprised, was 1947, if you know what Henry Ford was all about. Oh yeah, Nazis. Yeah, and yeah. I, but I, oh wow! If he was funding them, ugh, that blows my mind. I haven't. I don't know about. I don't know when they. A lot of these foundations turned. If you watch the interviews with Charlotte Ezerbite, she was uh, in the De- Department of Education under Reagan, but she's famous because her father was in Skull and Bones. Oh, really? And, and he got – this is the first – she kind of broke the code, cracked the code, whatever, broke the story on Skull and Bones because he got a membership roster in the mail. Like he would get a book. And she – I don't know if he was okay with it or if she did it behind his back, but she published that book. And that's how we know that like John Kerry was in it and George W. Bush was in it and all these people who were in it. Uh, and they – uh, she said, she said that like Pew, the Pew Foundation, and like there that there were plenty of foundations that were founded by good people for good purposes, but just one by one they were hijacked. That makes. So I'm sense. not saying that I Ford mean... being a Nazi is good. I'm just saying I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes these foundations were founded for one reason, and they've basically all been infiltrated and hijacked, which this is really important. Norman Dodd, and it's so freaking true that he suggested the solution be a rule against perpetuities for foundations. And I love the rule against perpetuities. It's a – like the only real question in politics in my mind is – the origin of property rights, and I guess if there are any limitations on them, you can really get all ideological conversations down to that, if you ask me. And then there is something that I don't think you can resolve. I think people just have to decide. Maybe it can be resolved. But in any case, one thing I loved in property law was the rule against perpetuities, which the way I look at it is land is for the living, that that possessions on earth are for the living and you cannot control stuff from the grave because there's been 125 billion people since the beginning of time. So there's, 
you can't, there isn't enough for all of those people, but there is enough for everybody on earth. So there's something, I think the rule against perpetuities is like at the end, you can't have any rules in your will that controls property beyond, I think, 20 years after the death of any living person relevant to your will. So if you're 100 and you have a newborn great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild, 20 years after that child dies, you can't have any impact at all. Like, your rules cannot hold on the property. And corporations and tax-exempt foundations don't have that. They can they can have this perpetual person that basically control you know that kind of intergenerational stuff can result in these very very long-term systematic transformations of you know of the world in this case i think oh i think so too i think that their intent is to do these long-term transformations they talk a lot about how on multiple occasions every single one of them talks about how people doing these day-to-day administrative tasks are so focused on the details that they aren't able to focus on the the one-year, two-year, 10-year, 20-year big picture that we are able to focus on. They talk about that? Oh, yeah. It's so true. I mean, that's the fact. And that's when it, that occurs to me, like I, I, when I met some of these people from these old families, I realized what an advantage is like at Ivy League schools, what an advantage they had over me. I like my parents... I didn't even know how to fill out an application, like what you were saying about Lori Lachlan and stuff. I really didn't know at all how to do anything, how to show up. I didn't, uh, the first day of Harvard, I was a junior. I transferred from community college and I did not know what a syllabus was. I went to a professor, like a tenured professor, and he, he was, he just looked at me and said, do I look like a secretary to you? I was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> do you have a secretary? <laughs> so I'm like, I never even had a professor at a secretary much. Less. I did not know what a syllabus was. So the, the advantage, and then, I, and then I started to realize like it goes much deeper than that to where if you are following on in your grandfather's business and he had a big corporation and he, and I, and I met, one person who had like the founder of their company from like hundreds of years ago had a kind of secret agenda and everyone who inherited the company was supposed to follow these rules. I don't know if it was an agenda or a protocol. I shouldn't say it was an agenda. I'm not sure. Yeah. And people get hired into the organization and then at that point they have to follow them. Yeah, I mean, that's why, that's what the crisis of democracy was saying, is that you get people into institutions, all you have to do, that's why I hate that CEOs of public companies have so much political power that they can influence the laws of a state. So, like, Target making demands about transgender bathrooms in one of the Carolinas. Right now, the AJC is reporting and I love your response to this, that TV and film companies are boycotting Georgia because of the heartbeat law. And your your question was what? Are those film production companies that are already filming here or that have never filmed here? Because originally yeah. the ones that said they made it sound like companies were pulling out. But in actuality, the first few had never actually filmed anything here. So, right. Whereas I think Jason Bateman, who is filming Ozark. He is, but he's not the production company. Then maybe he is an executive no, producer. But, and... but he said something a little bit different. He said if that law passes judicial scrutiny, oh. 
right? So he's got it can it can go all the way up to the Supreme Court before he has to put his money where his yeah, mouth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, but that's his easy. show had the crazy had I thought it had pro life message after pro life message. So maybe he's just trying to take cover and act like he's one of them, but he isn't. Although he's certainly. Not a Trump supporter, but I'm not sure this has anything to do with. Trump. Well, this show is making fun of that town, though. So I think it 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 might be. I could never watch it again after you told me the second season was going to be even worse. I was like, I can't watch it. Yeah, it's all right. I can't deal with that stuff too much. But but they do. So they take over, and then uh, they they don't even own the company. They didn't even found the company. The company is like a foundation for them. They can then use it. To control, I, I mean, I have worked in companies, and I'm not the only one I know who's personally had this experience, where uh, somebody will send out an email that says everybody needs to give a thousand dollars to this candidate. Oh, I get those every day. Not a thousand dollars. No, no, but is. from your boss. Oh <laughs> like, no, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like if they have ten thousand people working there, they're not allowed to give a uh, million dollars. But if they get every single person to give a thousand, adds up. Yeah, so I'm saying, like, if that's a diktat from your institution. A what? A diktat. What's a diktat? It's what a dictator. Oh, okay. Hands <laughs> down. Diktat. D-I-K-T-A-T. I'm a terrible spell. Okay, so I have a few more of these I want to I wanna get through. Go for the, it. All right, this is Haas was asked a question about how often he pulses uh, people in government to to – find out what they're feeling and whether or not they lead his agenda or vice versa. And this is his answer to that question. And by the way, all the people asking questions here are also members of think tanks. So it's not like the audience is just like regular people like, you know, and they're us. there to find out the secrets or what? It's just a meeting of think tanks. And I guess the most prominent ones are the ones up on stage that are asking, that are answering questions. And this is maybe like marching orders time or whatever. Just get your mind right. And this is how it goes. Cause actually you don't have to give people marching orders if you tell them, if you give them the vibe. That's how academics works, in my opinion. They know the vibe. They like what you're talking about. Like once you hire people in, you got the vibe. As long as you get that, you know what you're supposed to do. Nobody has to tell you to do it. Yes, it's like we know we're supposed to follow orders. We do it every day, but not quite in the way you said. We have an entire team here. Look, you need to produce things and you need to market them. You don't want to be the proverbial tree that falls in the forest that nobody hears. Congress, executive branch, but also mayors, governors, students, teachers, journalists, religious leaders. Uh, there's multiple constituencies here. I, the only thing I would take objection to is the idea of driving our agenda. I want to know what people are interested in. But at the end of the day, one of the reasons to be an independent institution is you drive your own agenda. And so, yeah, I'm interested in knowing what other people care about. But if I think something important, it's a little bit of Steve Jobs. You want to you wanna, you wanna not skate where the puck is. You want to skate where the puck's going to go. And just because policymakers may not be interested in a certain issue, the idea that I wouldn't work on it, it's the same reason I want to have independent funding. I don't want funders to determine our agenda. I, I'll listen, and I think that's useful to get the feedback, but I want to be truly intellectually independent so we can work on what we want and conclude what we think is the accurate conclusion regardless, or as I like to say in this town, irregardless of what people on the Hill may want to, may want to hear. 
I think that is complete load. He's at, he's telling these people that they're independent and they all have the exact same opinions about all this stuff. They know where they put out white papers telling you what to think. Yeah, that's the products that he's talking about, the products and services that, services that they put out. And they get those products and services to the pe- people in power and they go on to talk about later in the discussion about how they have – They've shifted in an attempt to expand their reach. So one of the questions that Haas poses is how can we continue to be valuable to the elites while also reaching the broader public with with the, essentially the talking points and our, our products that we're trying to put out there? And the solution to that is w- what he's talking about is, OK, we're going to talk in these elite terms to elite and now we just need to learn how to use social media and how to how to communicate via tweet in ways that the gen- – so that we can propagandize the general public. So they talked a lot about, yeah, we've been – we've we've been influencing the influencers. That's what one of them – in fact, I'll, I'll play you a clip of um, – this is a – But I think before – that yes, that I, I they definitely produce the white papers. They tell you what to look for, what to do. But his statement that who is funding these things? Who who are sitting on the who are the chairman of these things? When you trace back everything to Rockefeller or specific people with clear visions of of world centralization and all that kind of stuff. This is not, I mean, why would anyone take the reins of these powerful institutions with a lot of funding and say, well, Richard Haas, you have this position, you get your independent ideas, you get your independent conclusions. And then when you're going to be replaced by someone, um, I think Ron Paul might be like, have a totally different point of view. Like we should hire him and see how how he uses these resources and what you know what I mean they're not doing that they're finding the guy Richard Haas just spent 40 years training or whatever there's an agenda it's not right they, yeah they talk about that and the funding oftentimes comes from people who are on it so but there's idea foundations and there's people the funding also comes from the people who are in the think tank themselves so yeah but this idea that he's just sitting there the most objective person in the world reading a variety of resources and just kind of contemplating his navel until the right answer pops up and I'm going to uh, make my argument in an academic environment and I'll, you know, win or lose. If I change my mind, I change my mind, but I'm really just here seeking out the truth is not believable to me. Well, that's not even what I took from that clip. I got that clip because he blatantly says, yeah, I'll talk to people, but I don't care what they think. I'm pushing my own agenda. But he's saying that. He, it's an independent institution. We don't want funding from anyone. We want to just draw our own conclusions, come what may. And I think that's not. I mean, th- he's got somebody above. Yeah, and we will push these conclusions onto these people that we're influencing, regardless of whether they want them or not. Well, that's next, right? Let's hear it. No, I mean that's what he said in that clip. Oh, he did. That, oh. Yeah, he said that he doesn't care what they think. That if he wants something done, that he's going to. He's gonna he's gonna get his products out there, and it doesn't matter. It's not so. The other people, the public or policymakers, aren't going to change the agenda that he's going to force upon them. Is right. what I took and that's it. that's he's definitely doing that. Now, this is the Chatham House guy giving an analogy, one that's completely unrelatable. That someone <laughs> has to actually Hoss has to jump in and tell him to define it. But this this is an example of 
how they influence the broader public or their approach to it. I've used this metaphor before. He's like being little limpets around the source of policy. I mean, we... No one's a fan of limpet. Uh, a little, uh, one of those little sticky uh, uh, animals that sits around the water around a particular source. It might get the fresh water out. So right by the source, you know, the idea is you could be very small. Policy was made in a very targeted, direct way. And as that jet of water came out of the source of the river, if you just got your idea into the river right at the beginning, it would have influence all the way down. And you didn't have to be too big. You swam amongst the elites. You kept your networks really carefully identified, and you could have impact. That's a Bernaysian approach, wow, and, and yeah, he probably got it from them, actually. Who but, is that? Uh, that's the one of the directors at the Chatham House. I really want to Google Bernays and Limpet and see if he actually used that analogy himself. Maybe. Uh, Bernays might have trained under them because he learned – or he worked with when he was just starting. He worked with some of the British prior to World War One. Before he did his first major gig as member of the uh, Committee on Public Information. Oh, and no wonder what Freud's backstory. His uncle Sigmund Freud. I wonder what his backstory was vis-a-vis the British. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he German? I believe so, or oh. Austrian, but I think he was German. Okay, so I have like three more of these because I know you got some stuff too. Nah, I'm I'm weaving it in. Okay, great. Um, let's go with this one. This is a long one, but there's a lot of good information in here. Actually, let's break it up a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit of a shorter one because right. I know this one will trigger you. Uh, this is from the Brookings. Why do you like to trigger me? It's because if I do that, then I can like sit. I can sit and listen. <laughs> I don't have to do any work if I do that. You've done a lot of work. This is the product of a lot of work. So here is a Brookings think tank, a celebration of 100 years, and this one was came out right around the same time as the other one. And I'm just going to play this one and let you listen. I would also want to end with one thing that is certainly relevant in the U.S., but also very relevant in the Middle East, despite the climate, is that we usually focus on the fact that think tanks produce studies and reports and information. But they also produce people. Uh, in the U.S., obviously, it's that revolving door. You know, they serve an administration. They come and they go back. There's a positive side to that, that those people in the think tank over the years that they're out of office at least are focusing on the issue that they're supposed to focus on and hopefully go back with more expertise. They produce people. Ah, they create. Why did he say create? Create <laughs> close. people. Oh, my gosh. Was it Stacey Abrams actually sitting next to him for that? That's the first person I thought of. Of course. And she does, she does their circuit. She's there. Absolutely, like, she's it's there. It's like she's a lab. They might as well, when they have her on stage and have her acting presidential and saying, I want Biden to kiss the ring. I mean, I actually half expect those guys to be walking around her with clipboards, wearing white coats, like, excellent, excellent, well done, well done. Subject Abrams is... Abrams' bot needs to be tweaked right now. Oh, oh, wait, that was too that was too robotic. Can you give her more empathy? Yeah, talk like a, a preacher yeah, in the deep south. Yeah, but only called upon to do so, like her. Here's another one from the same guy. I've seen many cases where in the absence of a political conveyor belt, the think tank has been a rare place where you can get the ideas in because you put those ideas in a person and now the person is in. Do it again. I've seen many cases where in the absence of a political conveyor belt, the think tank has been a rare place where you can get 
the idea is in because you put those ideas in a person and now the person is in. You put those ideas in Stacey Abrams and now Stacey Abrams is but, in. But he's – I think he's saying – I would like – I would love to have a longer version of that clip because what it sounds like to me is he said in the absence of a political A political conveyor, conveyor belt. He's talking about – I think like you referenced in the previous clip where you go from government to think tank, from government to think tank, from government to think tank. Basically a path for elites. I think that right. – I think he's talking about a path for elites – in but business he, and probably education as well. I wonder if he's talking about I, I what, what I thought he was talking about, and I'm sure it applies anyway, whether it was or not, was how some countries this is this is why I became an anarcho capitalist, is that it was clear to me that a establishing an ironclad seat of power, even if you have it as chained up and as limited as the founders did with the Constitution, which wasn't as good as the Articles of Confederation, which because it was looser. But the if you ha- even if you have it all bound up, it is a seat of power, and somebody can occupy that, or the mechanism has that force behind it. But if you don't have that, if you have a failing system, uh, maybe you can still have a person in there on the ground a technocrat in Italy or or whatever, that even when the system is failing, if you put a person in there, a leader-type person, they feel like Guado in Venezuela. He's yeah. not in the political conveyor belt. He is trying to derail that, but there he is. I mean, who knows what his backstory is? Mao went to Yale, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He doesn't elaborate too much on the political conveyor belt. Oh, yeah, I get it. I mean, it's it's pretty smoking gun. Thank you for finding this. I mean, that's really what we talk about. I actually did a show about it two weeks ago. I know. A rated person. <laughs> I love this one because we talk a lot about fake news, but little did we know. Building up a fake think tank, not fake news, a fake think tank is extremely easy. Because there is a wide and broad definition of think tanks. We self-define ourselves as think tanks. But at the end of the day, if you, if you have a website, a lot of infographics and video, a director, two sponsors, and you organize one event, you can pretend you are a think tank. And what about, what if this new populism that we call it in different way in different I want to pause it right there. Yeah. Where do you think this is going next? Fake think tanks have emerged. All you yeah. need is a website and a couple of guys. I like it. He gave the website formula because I keep saying, like, all their websites look the same. I've said it like 10 times. He gives you the formula for the website. I mean, obviously, it's not a very complicated formula, but he tells you, like, that's how you do it. That's how you create a fake one. And what What an a-hole. Like, why would he say that it's a it's why what makes it fake what makes his legitimate his is actually well that's not my that, that's what you're gonna find out what makes yeah. it fake what I do mean, you think makes it fake they're not thinking they're not think tanks they're agenda generators they're propaganda generators do you have do you have a guess on what you think makes a fa- makes a think tank fake uh not agreeing with the agenda of that guy that's close let's see <laughs> comes up very soon with think tanks that are like us, but put on top of their fake story the uh, the framework of uh, an either 
more solid background being a think tank. We start seeing that in some cases uh, on Russia. Uh, in Italy, for example, there is a fake think tank which deliver the, the Russian position, but he is a think tank. <laughs> is invited to meeting because he has a website, a director, two sponsors, and so on. So That's the requirement. It gives the Russian position. Therefore, it's a fake think tank. Oh, that's hilarious. I mean, that's so – that just proves how, to use South Park terms, the guy is smelling his own farts. There's I like mean, three other clips from three other people to, talking he, about the same thing, and they say stuff like – uh, yes, and the, the 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 perception and the position is obviously wrong. It's like stuff like so they're not actually giving evidence of why it's fake. They're just saying we don't like their perspective. Anybody who represents their perspective is therefore a fake think tank. It's it's what's really alarming about it is that these guys think they're the smartest guys in the room, and that's such a profound fallacy. I don't know if it's like the enumerated philosophical fallacy, but it's a fallacy to think. That your position is the object, you know, it's like, it's like infantile to think that your position is the, is the correct one because it comes out of your mouth, you know, your perspective. And it reminds me of a video that Proud Truther put up on the com on our fantastic new forum that I'm completely addicted to. It's not, he's still tweaking it, but oh, I love it. It uh, is great. Like, it's great. I'm loving it, and I'm just I'm I'm a digital prepper, so I'm getting ready for the next purge. And uh, and he actually talks about which you're never going to see on Twitter. It's well, you probably would, but maybe not because what they talk about in the Project Veritas video is they secretly record Twitter guys talking about shadow banning, talking about suppressing these other ideas, and 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 making it. Feel to me, actually, this guy, you just played his worst, but the way they seem to feel is like, oh, well, obviously, you can tell what needs to be suppressed because you don't agree with it. <laughs> and, and we Absolutely. all agree. Yeah. This is something that we touched on a second ago about talking points. This guy's commenting on what think tanks do to get their talking points out there. The way they focus a discussion, they come out with analysis and perspectives that make their way into everybody else's talking points and discussion. That was short, but it was just an illustration that that is their goal, obviously, to seed those talking points into every discussion that we're hearing. Oh, that's what Quora is. It's oh, a talking yeah, point totally. machine. Talking point machine. And uh, I, I told you I met somebody from one of those places, and I – and and he really did not have information that debunks what he was saying. And he was like, what are you talking about? I would know that everybody who I work with knows this is the right answer. And I said, yeah, but I said, this is what I said. I think I said this to him. And he looked at me like he was going to be ill. Uh, I said, well, if you guys are all pulling the same feed off, like there's a teletype machine in the corner of this huge room and that's where you're getting all your information. Of course, you're going to have the same view. You're just going to write it different ways. And and I said, your director is the guy behind that. I mean, it's yeah. clear that you're just promoting that guy's viewpoint, but you don't realize it. So you're reading the same like raw material and you're in love with your own like writing style. 
I really think it gets down to that. Like they they honestly believe that they're geniuses. They but, really are pretentious. Yeah, but they're but they're what I've always said this about academia is that if you or even people like read the Wall Street Journal and feel really smart for doing it, it's that your your sense of intellectual accomplishment is fully grasping the existing paradigm. So really understanding what they want you to understand and how they want you to understand it. And then, and then, and that's how you get the pat on the back. That's how you get the raise. One of these clips, one of the guys says, our objective is not just to control what they think, but how they think. Wow. Yeah. That's all you need to control. All right, so here's here's Chatham House guy again, and I put this is two clips that I just I just put together because one of them is short, but um, he talks about how they work with the media. My read for a place like Chatham House is we can influence the influences. What you can do today, much more effectively, is partner. Some of the big media organizations are looking for partnerships that bring content. Credibility, to be frank, and so on. So whether it's the BBC or, uh, or even local newspapers and so on. And you can also provide, um, it's not just a platform, but a venue in which influencers within particular countries can get together under your brand and help drive a debate in their own country differently. I'll just give you one example. I think all the common futures conversations underway at Chatham House right now, um, African, young African leaders from 15 African countries 15 Europeans from European countries. Each of them have a network within their country. We're helping them design surveys in their countries about what matters most to their, uh, to them from an international perspective. Is it climate change, migration? Blend them together, give them space in which to have a platform electronically, media. You know, so in other words, we're not doing it. We can't, we don't have the resources to be out there, but it doesn't stop you, as Richard said, from having to go down the river, have that broader influence and not just try and do it all through the policy elites. So not only do they work with the media outlets to provide them with, quote, credibility and information, they give a platform to tell other countries what they're supposed to think is important. And did you hear it was I hearing that right? He said he would, like, give them the resources to, like, make a give them, like, website templates and stuff and make sure it comes from different directions. That's what I'm hearing. What you said about from that 1980s CIA thing, like they need, you need to have it look like it's coming from all different directions. Yeah. He's like, we don't have the resources to out there. And that's bull. Yeah. They, we don't have the resource. Well, he means that. at a marketing, like, like a media, you know, like a CNN type resources, but yeah, but if they could, if they wanted to, they don't right. want to, because then it's like white propaganda, which is not very effective. They need gray propaganda where you don't really know where the, Trudeau or actually, yeah, that you make a, that's a good point. And here's a clip to where he's actually speaking to that. And no, re, the term resonance and propaganda, which I, everybody probably gets that, but just for clarity, resonance is in propaganda. It's you're attempting to make the message that you or the, or the belief that you want people to have to make it arise within them so that they think that it came from inside them and that there was no outside influence that, that affected them. Not that it resonates with them, but that they misinterpret that resonance for 
for origination? Do you Say. think that's what it means? Like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm reading from an academic. Uh, yeah. So you're saying like resonant would mean it resonates with you, right? Like, like your yes, it, res- it resonates with you. I, the reason I, I tell yeah. I say that now is because this clip is going to is using that, so it contextualizes what he's saying here. Yeah, I mean, I could see it meaning that it. I I think there should be a word for it if that's if that's not it. Where what it's like the um, GoFundMe for the wool. My mother came up with that idea like a week before or a day before there was a GoFundMe for Trump's wall. Yeah. And everyone thinks it was her idea. And it might have been. It right. might have been. And that's but, the tricky part about propaganda is the yeah. goal is to create that. Yes. And this is him. This is the same guy from the CFR or from uh, Chatham House speaking about message resonance. Among other things. I think what we've realized today is that uh, policymakers in particular, and that's we are policy institutes, we're interested in I think, making better policy as well as better, better debate about policy. In a way, they don't always care if you're right. The question is, do you have resonance? Does your idea engage with people? Do they know that if they pick up your idea and even go with it, it will already have a bit of a following? So, that is scary. Yeah. They don't care if it's right. They just care if it's a message that they can people, put out there and people will think came from within themselves. Or that people will think is popular. He said, is it a message that you can pick up and run with, right or wrong? Right. I mean, that's about that's about your crowd power thing. Absolutely. These people are sick. This is the thing. We talk about this stuff. This is the conspiracy. I know. This is what we this talk about cons- all the time. <laughs> we talk about like they're thinking, oh, who's they? You're crazy. Oh, that Monica. Let's listen to you. But you're absolutely out of your freaking mind. I'm not, I'm just saying that who's they? You're so right, Binkley. You nailed it. This is they doing that. <laughs> um. All right. Yeah, it is. And here is this is Haas again. The first 90 years of this organization, I would say it had what you might call an elite or establishment focus. And that continues. And we continue to produce products and services for people in the in positions of power, positions of influence, and so forth. But around 10 years ago, we made the institutional commitment to reach a much broader swath of Americans. And again, what we did was we thought about who, what are the agents in a society? who have what you might call the uh, a multiplier effect. Teachers, journalists, people who give sermons in houses of, of worship, local political leaders. So what we did was we targeted all of them. And we've produced, whether services or materials, specifically designed for them. So we have workshops for teachers and professors, for religious leaders. Uh, we're now in we're now in high schools and colleges in all 50 states. We're in 120 countries around the world. We have produced we're producing an entire curriculum, a basic curriculum about how the world works and why it matters, <laughs> called World 101. We have simulations that are out there to teach people about policy making as well as the basics of a liberal arts education. And I think the the, the challenge is we've got to do all that at the same time we do the traditional sort of stuff and hopefully do that better. And I think. Uh, you know, it's 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 multitasking, but I I think one of the lessons of the last couple of years, if war is too important to be left to the generals, foreign policy is too important to be left to the foreign policy establishment, 
and there's going to be a broader conversation, and I believe institutions like these need to figure out a way, how do we become a resource for that larger conversation in our respective societies? Holy... (laughs) I'm... I'm dumbstruck and have like 5,000 things I have to say. Go for it. Starting with, I just quoted Kissinger saying that. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You saw that coming, right? Yeah. It's going to start, people are going to start thinking that like, we've talked about this before. I never, I don't even, (laughs) he sent me the links. I'm like, I'll get to it. I promise I'll get to it. You know, I'll never get to it. That's freaky. You've really got my number, Binkley. I feel like it's, it's starting to feel like a game. <laughs> I think you're just trying to mess with me. There's so many here, too. We'll never get through even half of these. Well, I've show. got to, I've got to just, I'll rattle off. You know, I can talk fast. Like, oh, I, yeah, just, go for it. It's yeah, blowing yeah. my mind. So, 1917 to 2007, they had a purely elite focus. Okay. Then what did they decide to do? They decided to do something else, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But it makes me think this whole thing, this whole idea of populism and when um, that they – I wonder if they – I'm going to get to – maybe I should have said this last instead of first. But they're using this populism, Trump, whatever, to demonize the uninstitutionalized. So people who are not the rural people, like regular workers, people who aren't in unions, when the union system started breaking down, like that's a threat, all that stuff. So they are demonizing the uninstitutionalized by making, by giving a nod to the populism that they're obviously, so it's like a two-pronged thing, I think. They're, they're giving, they're making room for an, an approach to, to the people, the populace, and at the same time, they're discrediting pure populism and they're doing that to drive like that's why you read that stuff like what how did trump get elected well rural areas are underserved by college let's get in there and fix it and they because they want to fix it they don't want they trump has to be a disaster to discredit the uninstitutionalized populist but i have said i, I had an epiphany probably it was when I first moved to Atlanta, so like 10 years ago or 11, I had an epiphany that what are the three most influential fields? And then I had a quick follow-up epiphany like, oh my gosh. And they never, there's no natural check on whether they're right or wrong. And all of that comes together in this clip or in these couple of clips because he says "I the three things were – Academics, politics, and media. I talk about that all the time. Yep. And he actually lists three and added another one. The multiplier effect is the way he put it. Yes, teachers, journalists, uh, politicians, and preachers. I I guess I I am resistant subconsciously to to joining that, like, anti-religion crowd because I think— Look at Stacey Abrams' mom. She very much delivers propaganda as a preacher. Well, that's when—when you started playing her clips to me, that's when I realized, especially when it was, like, hateful, I realized, like, there's no connection whatsoever with religion and preachers and, like, God and goodness sometimes. Yeah. That's what I had not realized. But now I do. Like, this is really coming together. And it stinks for me because— uh, this happens like with foreign policy too. Like I'm anti-imperialism. 
but I'm not a socialist or a communist. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. But the stuff that I find written about anti-imperialism is always written by these like sincere communists or people who want to sully the message by associating it with a, uh, an economic ideology, which yeah. I want nothing to do with. So if I were to criticize the preachers, I would just feel like I'd be in league with many who want to undermine uh, the goodness of religion in order to undermine the cohesiveness or the value system of, I'm not saying like Christian America, I just mean America. Like there's, um, I think having an objective truth, an objective right or wrong is is powerful and outside manipulation. But if you have a subjective one, like secular humanism that takes God out of it and takes like kind of objective truth out of it, you're much more prone to what he's talking about here, which is by taking those people where the rubber never hits the road, where where right or wrong just means the ability to grasp the existing paradigm and what he's saying is to serve it, that that that's why he said earlier it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong as long as you can pick it up and run with it and people will follow you or i would say you get your pat on the back or you get your raise or you get your tenure you get your your you win your election i mean this is all coming together and and that thing about demonizing the uninstitutionalized taking the populist and and jamming them institutions that's where that free college comes in it's mm-hmm. you can tell from what he's saying that college just like he's saying oh my my think tank is independent and i uh we just reach our conclusions i mean college isn't that if you went and actually tried to figure out what if truth what if truth were horrible like what if truth were um racist and you know like what if the most uh, economically efficient system were fascism you know like yeah. what if it really were and you wanted to in your economics class say hey you know i don't i don't like it it's not good but i you know i used to think human beings are inherently good but really they're not and the best way to do it is to treat them like animals and take their civil rights you know what i mean it was like let's murder like what if that were the truth could you imagine trying to have that conversation in college you could never, yeah. and and it should be debunked. It should you should be like that's why I kind of like the hardcore Catholic thing. When my kids went to the Catholic grammar school, like they could say anything, and and that institution was so confident that they could they could argue and always reach the same conclusion, which is God is good, and we're made to the image and likeness of God. Like they were not afraid of that. But this stuff where they don't care if it's right or wrong, they can't let you think and argue. Exactly. That was triggery, man. I'm going to need a cocktail after that. (laughs) There's another one. This one, Haas is talking about big picture strategy. Richard Haas from the CFR. If anything, there's more conceptual work to be done today than in recent decades simply because the international system, I would argue, is in such fluidity with new forces, new technologies, new powers emerging. This, is, this ought to be an incredibly rich moment of intellectual work in the realm of rele- policy-relevant work. And for the most part, it's not happening. So I would actually think that a little bit of physician heal thyself. I think there's a real challenge to, to organizations like this, four of ours and thousands of others, To basically, I mean, if universities are guilty of doing too much uh, theoretical quantitative work, which is irrelevant, okay, then think tanks have to be careful about getting too close to policy, Mm. which can politicize or get too small. 
I think there is an in-between space, a kind of sweet spot for organizations like this. We can talk about in terms of the size of the issue, the timeline, where we are doing work, the big idea work. Because you can't, it's very, look, I, you know, several of us have worked in government. You're too busy in government. You, you, I've never been in a meeting, basically, where someone says, ah, I read that, you know, thing, and that, if it's about immediate policy, because you operate at a level of detail and immediacy in government, which outsiders can't keep up with. But you can be six months ahead, two years ahead in terms of framing debates, framing issues, shaping the next generation of policymakers, getting ahead of it. And that, I think, is our challenge. It's less the day-to-day, but more the month-to-month or year-to-year. And that's where the conceptual work, I believe, if anything now, needs to be done as much as ever. Two years ahead, framing debates, which this is something that we talk about a lot. They keep us looking right in front of us while they're thinking – at least in this case, two years ahead about how they're going to frame the dialectic. And that none of the people who are making policy ever think of ideology and that what they are actually doing at the at the level of enacting policy or executing it is something that regular people can't even keep up with. Yeah. And and if they're responsible for the big ideas, which are driving policies, which are driving these um, this m- minute execution, I I mean, people think culture shapes policy. I think policy shapes culture, and I think that's what they're doing. They're, that Then if we're not keeping up with it, it's just happening to us. Absolutely. And, yeah, this is I, – I don't know who, what this guy's name is. He's one of the moderators for the Brookings panel, but he says – that these are the two qualities that are going to be vital for think tanks in this in this new future, and it's something that we see all the time. Those two qualities alone in the 21st century will determine your relevance. How flexible are you, and how agile? How quickly can you can you pivot an organization onto an issue uh, to maintain that intellectual relevance, which is essential? I thought that was interesting. How quickly can you pivot an organization onto an issue? We as the public are pivoted onto different issues like a Rolodex every week, every couple of weeks or so, and I believe that's what they're referring to here based on the context of the entire panel is how quickly can you make an organization and therefore the public they influence, how can you make or switch what is important in their minds? How quickly can you do that is going to determine how relevant you are as a think tank. That tells me that this fury of switching issues and keeping people occupied all the time and making people care about things that otherwise they wouldn't really care about or that they've never really cared about before is going to just continue to increase as you know we become more and more of a digital world. And it's not just – I'm getting from that <clears> – <throat> I mean it was short – so I'm not 100% sure, but I'm getting from that, that if it is, if you can't keep up, if not only the, the actual policy executors can't keep up or the people in the outside world can't even keep up with them and they can't keep up with the big ideas, and he's talking about institutions being flexible and agile and turning on a dime, if there's no time to think and they're just ticking things off quickly, yeah. you get overwhelmed by it, and it happens. I mean, incrementalism at high speed, if you understand the old yeah. meaning of incrementalism, where you couldn't ju- – they, they gave up on the idea of basically a communist revolution and said, look, we'll just take away at it, little chip away at it. 
starting with property rights so that people are uh, and all these kind of things. That is scary. But this the, the message I'm getting from all the stuff that you're playing for me is actually putting into practice stuff. I have I have books on here from the the tax exempt foundation books and uh, I mean, tragedy and hope and crisis of democracy and all this stuff that makes me think the these institutions were put in place, these think tanks, all this stuff were established, let's say, after World War II with the Marshall Plan and everything like that. For this reason, they were put in place. Oh, you know what a great one is that Laswell book, The National Interest, where he talks about putting stuff into committees and just getting stuff out of the main main hopper of debate so that it gets executed without anybody really realizing these are always and it's funny that I should be the champion of democracy I'm not even really I'm not even championing democracy they are subverting democracy I'm just saying that our system purports to be a democratic republic a representative republic and we think that's what it is but it isn't because of what these people are doing. So instead of assessing, it's like contrail versus chemtrail. I don't know. I don't care. I know stuff coming out of planes fills the sky and changes sunny days to hazy days. So we don't have to talk about if, – if people aren't talking about what's actually happening, then they're being bamboozled. So look, if we want a technocracy – Let's talk about that. Let's uh, let's see if we want to hand uh, the reins over. But instead, we have this opiate of democracy that they're they're not. They won't take that away from us. Like so, when Zappa says, you know, you open the the curtain in the back of the theater and there's a brick wall there. Yeah, there's nothing there. It's th- it's <laughs> these people doing these things with institutions, and when they're talking openly about infiltrating teachers, journalists, politics, and preachers, what? I mean, I I guess he's not going so far as to say uh, controlling corporations and all that, but we know that's also happening with Target and bathrooms and film and – Well, the Chatham House guy talked about how they partner with the media organizations, the BBC. Which is kind of funny since the BBC is government-owned media. Yeah, a good point. Okay, I got one more quick one just because I think it's funny the way he says it, he wraps it up, and then I have some some lighter clips about abortion, which you know that's always lighter uh, clips about yeah, abortion. lighter clips about abortion. <laughs> Please, I don't know if I'm so, ready. Then we for can that. wrap it up. Then we, we can. I know you had some points on that. I don't want to laugh at that. And uh, all right, so this is I can't remember. This is a guy who's in the audience who is also the head of a think tank, and I love the way that he ends this little little clip. I think the task which we all haven't fulfilled yet is. Uh, to actually reach out to a wider public that is seeing a difference between national interest and international peace and security. And and sort of make clear to them, as someone said this morning, that internationalism matters for you. It makes you more secure. International matters to you. It makes you more secure. That's a lie. That's, that sounds like a slogan that we're going to be hearing sometime soon. No, I don't only not only do I not want internationalism, I kind of want the borders of my property to be sovereign. But internationalism makes you more secure. It does not. Doesn't that just I mean, I could see that on a television commercial. 
We're just repeating that over and over. Internationalism <laughs> like in makes you Troopers, more. Yes, exactly. Blasting and the on the the mega screen, but the wall screen. Internationalism makes you more secure. <laughs> Repeat after me. <laughs> okay. This isn't funny. <laughs> but these abortion clips, though. Please, please, really. These clips of abortion, they aren't of abortion. They're of Leslie Jones from Saturday Night Live. Who They just decided on Saturday Night Live, they're like, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give Leslie Jones five minutes. We don't want her to say anything funny. We only want her to yell and scream and say really crazy things that okay, don't so make any sense. So it's funny because it's not at all funny? About abortion. That's what's funny about this is that it's not funny. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And it makes no sense what she's even saying. Right. Most of it doesn't. Because she's actually trying to make points, but her points are irrelevant. Of course. Um, okay, this is my favorite one. She she's comparing, you know, what this new law would mean if if this law is going to pass. Then what's next? This is how it starts. I'm out living my life. Then I see on the news a bunch of states are trying to ban abortion and then tell me what I can and can't do with my body. Next thing you know, I'm in Starbucks and they won't take my credit card because I'm a woman instead of the regular reason, which is I don't have no money on it. (laughs) That's where we are. If this abortion laws pass, then women are no longer going to you're not going to get your credit card accepted at Starbucks because that's the next step there. That's the slippery slope. That, that's absurd. Does she live in a state that's trying to take away abortion rights? She lives in uh, I don't know where she lives. The, I, I assume New York, but I don't know. Well, I will say she is hinting at. The social credit thing, or they won't take your credit card. That's a great point. I yeah. hadn't considered that. Yeah. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. But it ain't going to be her who, who gets... No, yeah. she's going to be a technocrat. You know what? Not only can you not have an abortion, give me that Starbucks right now. You're done. You're done with Starbucks. <laughs> or what I really think is going to happen is that the price of Starbucks for per incremental cup is going to be higher and higher depending on if you're overweight. So you go back That's and like, oh, the second one has 100% tax because you're obese. Well, here's another one where her reasoning just makes no sense. You can't control women because uh, I don't know if y'all heard, but women are the same as humans. <laughs> and I'm Leslie Dracaris Jones. <laughs> Jones. Could play that one all day there. <laughs> so, so she the so same just as so, Oh, go ahead. So it's a competing. I don't know. I did. I have to give a plug to this article I put up on the on the properport.com forum. I I really do not like to wade into the question of abortion because they it, it's all about laws and I don't need, I don't think it is even. I think we spend so much time arguing about what law, like, should it be okay, should it be yeah. banned, should it be promoted, should it be paid for. Let's just stop down and 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 understand that either we can resolve an issue of profoundly conflicting values or we can't, in which case we cannot share laws. If we don't have the same values, we cannot have the same laws. But there's something about this argument that I never thought of, and it's very – it was a very 
like uh, it just uncomfortable thing to read and deal with was I posted, I forget who wrote it, but the the guy was conceived in rape and he said, I'm the 1% that justifies a hundred percent of this argument. And I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people I named rattles off well-known people who were conceived in rape. And I just, it, it it's just such a, I hate the, like, I always say that about the rape and incest thing. Well, it's not, it doesn't have the rape and incest. It's like, you know what? Let's not even get to that point first. Let's talk about the values that we profoundly disagree with because it's not about rape and incest. That's it, not what it's about. Anyway, I just, I, I'm so sick of. Uh, what did the guy say? He said he was conceived in rape. He's against abortion. And he's like, don't, don't blame. You know, these are still people. They're still the innocent victims. Yeah. And in that clip, Leslie Jones is, is acting like. It's like an attack on the humanity of women. It's like what? It, yeah, it, like as if, I guess, I mean, this is already going further than I want to go and as far as like a, a legal discussion. But I think she's trying to say, I'm as much of a human as that human you're arguing for. So taking away abortion rights is as bad for her as abortion is for that unborn human. I don't know. I don't know. She spends about another minute talking about how you can't control her body because she weighs 230 pounds. But, I mean, I don't know. I I, I could get into it. I just it, – It's I just like the, the way they do sad. it in that show with SNL and every other show is they, they speak about it in a way that makes it impossible for people to have a conversation about it. And you have this article here, which is going to – I mean, that that's that's – I haven't read it, but that's – I will read it. That that's something that probably should be discussed. You never even thought of that. Yeah, that that should be discussed, but you probably won't hear anybody actually discussing that stuff because the whole idea with this abortion debate is to get people fighting with each other. And you know what was an interesting thing? I really think that this all came up. I have a son with Down syndrome, and I know people. It was very difficult when he was a kid, and I know people. If I didn't have resources, or I didn't live near my family, you can do one or the other: have big family nearby, or you can have a lot of resources. But my son, still to this day, needs twenty-four hour supervision. So, I mean, I sleep, but I have alarms, uh, and it's very difficult. And I've known people who were like, "Look, if I had known, I would have had an abortion because I can't handle it." And there used to be orphanages, but starting with JFK or the movement was, and JFK accepted it, that orphanages and institutions and mental health facilities were were a violation of people's civil rights. They were awful. They were inherently wrong. And in fact, I think what they were was a lot of them were inherently bad, like they were dirty and not well run and abusive. I mean, they needed reform. But the idea of having a place in this rich society most of them were private, so or many of them were private. So I'm not even again. I don't need to talk about the laws of it. But when we stigmatize places for people to live, people who cannot function within the normal family dynamic or within the normal like go to work and come home and make your own dinner kind of dynamic, once you stigmatize living outside of that and and closed all those facilities down. There is no place to go. And that's how I think abortion really got a foothold. And and that conversation should be had because you wouldn't even have to have the law. 
if you had a if you all of a sudden had the resources to help people who could not take care of those kids, a lot of abortion would just go away. You wouldn't have to have fights. Yeah. So I just feel it's, like it's a complex gonna... issue, and yes. they do everything they can to simplify it and make sure that nobody ever has and make it a real conversation about it and hateful and yeah. defensive. It's a lot. Of, a lot of I don't want to say a lot because I, I don't know the percentages, but I do know that there are a certain amount of women that experience PTSD. A, a, a certain – it's similar to PTSD oh, yeah. after having – Oh, yeah. You'll never – it's like finding out about officer-involved shootings and um, officers getting killed. I mean uh, the you're never going to get – and even guns. Either way, no matter which side you're on, you're probably never going to get good statistics or any good studies. That's why I don't like – the health system being captured by the government from the centers of disease control to the research to the actual provision of health. Once they're in it for a reason, social engineering, social control, money, whatever, you can't trust it. I mean, that these are the reasons I became an anarcho-capitalist. Like you just can't trust it. And, and, but we, I think that it would behoove us to actually take uh, take a step back from politics all the time. Take a step back from do yeah. I pay for it or do I put you in jail for it? Like that's literally how a lot of these these marginal questions that really don't I don't think have a place in politics. Yeah, they they frame that debate yeah. where the two sides are incompatible. And, and it has and, to be life or death. Like you're going to yeah. go to jail or like in China they force you to have an abortion. I mean and they and people don't like. I'm sure the women's right to choose does not like that. Yeah, well, they don't ever talk about that though. And you know, maybe Richard Haas and his friends were for, been framing this debate. I think it's probably been framed this way for a long time. But abortion, like racial tension, is one of those things that I guess a wedge issue might be what they call it. But they have no reason to facilitate healthy debate and healthy conversation about it because they don't want progress and they don't want people coming to a, a shared conclusion on it they they well it's so easy to divide and conquer with those issues they have no incentive to facilitate healthy debate and they're not being sincere because the if you speak about race the racial element of it flipped so that it started as a way to convince whites i didn't margaret sanger speak at the ku klux klan she was trying to say it will keep black population down and a friend of mine uh said her daughter has a, a, a small group of friends, um, maybe half black and half white. And the black girls think that the white girls being against abortion is because they're like rich and they don't understand how bad it can be. And I would say, but if you look back like that in itself is, was a subversive kind of brainwashing thing. Like that's your answer. That's, they want you to think that that's your only hope is, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's a very – whether it's economic or racial or whatever, it's a really sad state of affairs to think that because you are disadvantaged, you can't have your own children. You know what I mean? It, it's it, it's a complex – it's buried underneath a complex web of propaganda. It goes to what you said a moment ago, the idea that that you're limited – to certain choices that you you only ever be able to have a certain level of success because of where you're from or where oh, you grew up. That's if, what that is my number one thing is that 
if you look back at the contemporary writings of slavery and colonialism and conquering indigenous people, they use the same arguments. You stand away in the way of progress by defending these people as if they're human. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. So, so the propaganda element comes in because people who should I, – I don't think you can package up, okay, this is your ideology and give it to somebody of a class or a race and say this is how you should feel about it. Each and every one of those points has arguments on both sides, and each individual should be able to understand it based on their values. And then you have to go back and say, okay, even if you're going to have that debate – then you come back to the original problem, which is what are your values? And are those values that we can work with together, living side by side in the same community that has a legal structure that has enforcement? Enforcement of the law. Right. So if you're going to enforce it and 49% of the people have one value system and 51% have the other value system. Yeah. And they can come to your house with guns and put you in jail or, and that's what we're talking about. I mean, that just seems, it seems impossible to say that something that is that divided should be something that can be enforced in that way. Now people will say, Oh, if you read the letter of the law, I'm not talking about the letter of the law. I don't care about the letter of the law. I think we're the letter of the law is, uh, obfuscating the real issues that mm -hmm. people should be able to talk about. And the, and the bottom line is our resources, we have more resources than any society in the history of humanity. Like, I mean, we should be able to come to some viable solution that doesn't make people at each other's throats all the time. Yeah, and I think that viable solution starts with Recognizing that you're not limited by what the propaganda has made people believe, just in life in general, that you're limited to, that you actually can make choices outside of that and do things that they, quote, would say that you cannot do. And I, I think it all starts there, knowing that you're not, you're not held down by all these kind of illusionary restrictions that we believe we're held back by when we're born. And, and you and, could start. By in the here and now empowering yourself by having standing firm that you can actually have an intelligent conversation without falling for the bait of ideological, ideological pigeonholing, anger, hatred. I mean, that's where it starts. Forget that. Forget that topic. Forget the abortion topic and just say, you know what? I want I will the good to the other. I think that was St. Augustine's definition of love. I will the good yeah. to the other. And if that if that and maybe I don't understand What's good for you? Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Let's not hate each other in this process. Yeah, if we could just have these conversations, it would transform everything. And even before that, if you just if you just readied yourself for a conversation like that, that you are hoping is couched in true understanding, you wouldn't even have to have the conversation. You'd be where you need to be. Well, I think that's a good note to wrap it up on unless you have uh, some more stuff. No, I think I wove in everything that was worth weaving in. And uh, anything on the cutting room floor, I'll get to next time. All right. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you, everyone who has donated and continues to donate. I want to try to figure out some kind of way where we can personally thank you guys. Uh, I'm not quite sure yet on what approach Go to Go to the forum. Let's have a forum on thepropreport.com. We have like five forums of political, but we should have a, a sponsorship forum. 
That's a good idea. That's a good idea. You have to register, but there's not much to that. Just like put your name in, give yourself a username, and you'll get a little at handle. It's so cool. I'm so excited about it. It is pretty cool. And our um, listenership is skyrocketing. So I have to say thank you very much for everybody. I, I attribute it to people uh in part to people sharing episodes they like or making comments um giving us good reviews that pushes the pushes us up in the search engine i really appreciate that yeah so share the show with a friend uh give us a rating if you haven't and if you want to donate financially you can through patreon or paypal and again thank you everyone who has supported us and continues to support us and thank you monica and we will talk to y'all next time thank you so much binkley Later. See y'all later.